Good afternoon. You are listening to Donland Signals on WERU-FM. Donland Signals is a monthly talk show where we hold space for critical conversations of truth, healing, and change here in the Donland. We explore topics such as restorative justice, restorative practices, decolonization, cultural revival, and more. Our guests are people involved in aspects of truth, healing, and change work. This program is offered in an effort to share, inspire, and inform. Dawnland Signals is a collaboration of Wabanaki Reach and WERU-FM. I am your co-host, Maria Gerard. Good afternoon. I am your co-host, Esther Ann. And we are, um, it's bittersweet day for us because we're so excited to talk about this topic uh, of the Indian Child Welfare Act, but it's also um, our last show. We've been offering Dawnland Signals for about three years now and have decided to, um, to discontinue, but all the shows are still archived on the radio station for anybody that wants to listen to our past conversations with people. So today, um, as I mentioned, we're going to be going to be talking about the Indian Child Welfare Act, which is a federal legislation that was passed in 1978, which um, codified higher standards of protection for American Indian children involved in state child welfare. ICWA has long been considered the gold standard in child welfare policy because of those higher standards of proof best practice requirements such as active efforts to prevent removal and facilitate reunification because of the qualified expert witness testimony that's required and the fact that the tribe is considered the third parent. <clears throat> Today uh, in, in the studio, um, we'll be wel welcoming our special guests and getting into a wonderful conversation about the Indian Child Welfare Act. But first, Maria is going to give us a land appreciation. Thanks, Esther. Let's just take a moment to pause and to acknowledge the land beneath our feet. Wabanaki, the land of the first light, the dawn land, land that has known Wabanaki ancestors, the tallest trees and the oldest rivers, land that has known peace, and conflict, land that has nourished us and sustained us since time immemorial. We acknowledge the indigenous peoples of this land, Wabanaki, the Passamaquoddy, Penobscot, Mi'kmaq, Maliseet, and Abenaki, and we give thanks to your stewardship and resilience. Nadalmabanaluk, all my relations, we are broadcasting from WERU studio, in Blue Hill, Alamusic, Wabanaki. Thank you, Maria. So today um, on Dawnland Signals, we are talking about the Indian Child Welfare Act, share some of the history of the act um, the, and how it's been implemented in Maine. Maine has led the way in, in many aspects of uh, ICWA implementation. <clears throat> um, most specifically, uh, Wabanaki Reach, and the ICWA work group, which is a tribal state group of uh, child welfare uh, staff people, created the first, the country's first truth commission focused on ICWA. 
uh, with the goals of truth, healing, and change, the Maine Wabanaki State Child Welfare Truth and Reconciliation Commission spent 27 months investigating what happened to Native people in the Maine child welfare system since ICWA was enacted in 1978. They released their final report called Beyond the Mandate in June 2015 that included 16 findings and 14 recommendations. So the ICWA work group came together in um, 1999 when the state of Maine uh, participated in a pilot review of their child welfare system and they were found to be out of compliance with some aspects of ICWA. So they reached out to the tribes and asked for help in developing a training to help their caseworkers comply. And that group, the Tribal State ICWA Work Group, continues to meet to this day. That's where the roots of Wabanaki Reach um, came from. And today um, we have two members of the ICWA Work Group that are here to, to have this conversation with us. First, we have Norma Salas who is the ICWA director at the, at, for the Mi'kmaq Nation up in Arusta County. Welcome, Norma. And we have Shi Chen, who is uh, with the Attorney General's Office for the state of Maine. So I'll let them um, introduce themselves more and, and start the conversation and see where it goes. Norma, do you wanna start? Sure, <clears throat> good afternoon. Um, hi, everybody. Um, my name is Norma Salas, and, and I have a distinct um, difference or um, attribute in that I'm um, from the Penobscot Nation, and uh, my heritage includes Kiowa and Maliseet as well, um, along with Irish, and uh, I am married um, to a Maliseet, um, my husband's Maliseet, and I work at the Mi'kmaq Nation. So I get a overall view of our families and our children and have um, that experience in my knowledge bank, um, which I've been able to draw on over a number of years. And currently um, I'm the ICWA director and uh, got the new title a couple weeks ago, slash tribal court administrator, since we are looking at um, uh, establishing a family court in the Mi'kmaq Nation, similar to that, and uh, Penobscot and the Passamaquoddies have. And it's my understanding that Lori Jewell and the Maliseeds and Holton are doing the same. So it's exciting times and good things happening. And um, we continue to work in child welfare and supporting our children and our families. Do you want to introduce yourself? Thanks, Esther. Uh, hi, everyone. My name is Shi Chen. I'm an assistant attorney general with the Child Protection Division. Uh, so we represent DHHS in child protective cases in Maine District Court. And I, um, I'm on the Equal Work Group as well. And I've been there since uh, 2015. And we work collaboratively with everyone on the work group. Um, to make sure that ICWA is being followed, to do trainings, and really to um, to just collaborate is a good word for it, um, in, in really improving outcomes for children, um, and specifically, you know, it, it, Indian children when we're talking about ICWA, um, but, you know, and, and really educating all of us and, um, and others as well about the cultural aspects and, and the history, um, which really inform where we are today. Um, that, you know, this isn't, 
this isn't something just in the history books or something like that. These are issues that are going ongoing into the present and impact families and children um, in the present as well. And I think that's something that we're continually working on to educate the public and stakeholders in our world. Yeah, this is Esther. So a little bit about that history. Um, the, the Indian Child Welfare Act was created in 1978 as in response to the high disproportionate rates of uh, Indian children that were being removed from their homes and their tribes and their communities to be um, fostered and adopted by uh, outside of their communities by non-Native people. And there, some of the statistics, it's up to maybe 25 to 50% of American Indian children were taken. So due to a lot of activism by a lot of uh, Native people in the decade previous to 1978, this law was passed and um, <clears throat> it, even though it was passed in 1984, Maine still had one of the highest rates of removal of Native children. So when the state reached out in 1999 to the tribes and, and asked for help, it was a pretty, um, was a pretty radical act. <laughs> and when I say Maine has been uh, a leader in how ICWA is implemented, one thing that I, I um, think about is how the law, the, the federal ICWA law um, says that when a native child comes into the state child welfare system, at the time the state takes custody is when the, um, they, ha they have to notify the tribe. And in Maine, that notification happens when there's a call to investigate at intake. They notify the tribe right there and nothing, they go out together, that state caseworker and the tribal caseworker, um, they work as co-case managers in this in these cases, which is not, I don't, I don't know where the else that happens across the country. And when the ICWA work group was formed in 99, when we got together to, um, I, I was working for Penobscot Nation at the time, so I was part of that um, early effort. And when, when we got together to, um, you know, we, it was a short term, we're just gonna develop this training and then we'll be done. <laughs> and here it is so many years later, uh, we saw the, the value of that coming together for the children and that good work. And, um, <clears throat> you know, really started working on issues of better policy, better relationships and some of, some of the things that we sit in, just the fact that we sat around the table to talk about ICWA cases was unheard of back then. And there's a lot for Mainers to be proud of uh, when it comes to ICWA implementation. Um, I just, this is Norma um, Salas just kind of chiming in again. Um, I really do like that you brought up the training and the training we're talking about is that for the um, caseworkers that are in the Office of Children and Family Services, um, not just CPS, but permanency as well. And in that training, they, they really get to understand, they have a, it's a, sensitive, a sensitivity to understanding about, um, you know, the, the, the Native families that are within the state. And it's just amazing to me how receptive they are to learning 
and and really wanting to um, understand and to promote that um, notification right at the point of um, a report. So now when CPS receives a report, a mandatory report, um, Central um, notifies us as uh, child welfare and notifies us directly, which is awesome. And sometimes simultaneously we'll get a notification from the Central um, Katahdin Data Bank, which is interesting that, um, and also we'll get a notification from the caseworker. Norma, I've got this new report and because our systems are secured, they will send me kind of a synopsis of that and how to move forward. And I just wanted to share with um, everybody, the listeners, that why that's important is that oftentimes um, as child welfare caseworkers, we can um, work together with um, those caseworkers from the Office of Children and Family Services, and we can look at um, some different preventative ways. We can look at services within our community. We can look at um, extended family members. Um, in the state of Maine, we have a designated Indian custodianship document that we can look at transferring those parental responsibilities to um, uh, uh, somebody within the extended family. And conversely, if the extended family is um, um, not from the tribe, a non-native, we can look at a delegation of parental rights if we feel that's in the best interest of the family, uh, of the children at that time. Um, to keep the children safe, it's, it's an element of safety while there's an assessment investigation going on, and then look at how we can begin that reunification process. Just thought I'd put that in there, <laughs> share a little bit of that. Yeah, and reunification is um, the goal of the Indian Child Welfare Act. That's, that's number one. And um, <clears throat> it maybe she can share a little bit about the um, elements of the ICWA law that talk that address um, placement preferences um, that help facilitate reunification and maybe active efforts. Sure, sir. And, and I might uh, start a little backwards, if you don't mind, because I think with the active efforts, it's it's important to know that, you know, it's active efforts to reunify a family after there's been a form of removal as well. But there's an, uh, the, the other half of that is there's also active efforts to prevent the removal in the first place. So this is going back to what Esther was talking about in that collaboration from that first report. And that's why it's so important because you, you wanna have that collaboration between DHHS and tribal child welfare staff to really prevent removal in the first place because that's everyone's goal is to not have to remove children if, if, if we can do so in a safe manner. And that's that's perhaps maybe one of the reasons that, you know, Esther, I think you, you've referred to um, the active efforts portion of ICWA as kind of like the gold standard. And that that's kind of been used by many people in the child welfare sphere. So I think that's a, that's really important to know is that, you know, there's there's this emphasis on trying to prevent removal always, you know, in a safe manner, but trying to be creative and, you know, and work with tribal partners to prevent removal if possible. But, you know, in those circumstances when 
a child or children do have to be removed from, you know, their parents, custodians, relatives, whoever their caregivers are, um, the placement preferences under ICWA, if you look back into the congressional history from when ICWA was enacted, the placement preferences really serve as um, informing what's called essentially the best interest of the child. So in most kind of garden variety, you know, you know, if there's a dispute of custody between children, you know, just two parents divorcing, or there's a parental rights and responsibilities action or something along those lines, there, there's, a, there's this notion called best interest of the child, which is familiar in many family law contexts. And what ICWA does is ICWA places kind of additional, more specific requirements on best interest of the child by informing the courts, you know, what may or may not be considered. And a lot of that is aimed at preventing, you know, past discrimination against tribal members for perceived, you know, um, substance use issues. You know, th th these are all, you know, historical discriminations going back decades and centuries, right? Or, you know, so-called unorthodox, you know, family structures or things like that that might not be recognized in kind of Western, you know, whatever you want to call it, uh, this, uh, you know, culture. Um, but that is part of, you know, child rearing practices within the tribe. So when we're talking about the specific, ICWA, you know, placement standards, it recognizes most importantly, that children do better with family members and extended family members. And I think it's key that extended family members is not just defined under you know, state law, but it also recognizes family members and extended family members as defined by tribal law and tribal custom. You know, so I think that's hugely important um, that that is the emphasis. And then you know, from there, the placement preferences, you know, the first is for extended family members, but from there, you know, it goes out to kind of homes approved by the tribes. And so it's really trying to maintain that connection between the tribe and the child and recognizing that, you know, the children and the next generation are, you know, the future of the existence of the tribe. You know, it's, it's, it's really, you know, not, you know, we, in, in kind of like Western, you know, you know, anglicized culture, you know, you talk about children as property of the parents kind of, that that's often how they're conceptualized. But um, I think ICWA does a good job of recognizing that the tribe has a central interest in these children as well. And that's really what's um, what's emphasized in the specific placement preferences. And, and this is Esther, I'll, I'll add that in 1999, again, Maine um, leading the way passed uh, legislation that enabled the Office of Child and Family Services to pay foster care reimbursement to tribally approved homes. So, um, so they, they're looking to the tribe to, to give them guidance on where um, to place children that are from that tribe. So that, that was huge. I, I'm not sure how many other states do that and that it was giving up, you know, a, that control over these homes, but that the trust has been built and, and it's um, part of their practice now to look to tribally approved homes. Yeah, I just wanted to chime in. This is Maria. Um, and when I was listening to you, she talk about the active efforts, uh, not only to reunify, but active efforts to prevent removal to begin with. 
um, my mind immediately went to um, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and how often we heard that statement that the trauma is in the taking and thinking about, um, you know, how traumatic it is for the children to not only be removed from their uh, homes, but then to be removed from their communities on top of it and how traumatic that would be. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's a great point. And, and, and um, you know, I, I don't know if we'll get into this a little more later, but as people may be aware, there it was currently up on appeal at the in the U.S. Supreme Court based on some of those issues. And one, one of the issues was, you know, the phrasing of one of the specific clauses regarding Indian families for as a placement preference. But it's really interesting because if you, if you go back to some of the congressional history and how it's been implemented, you can see that they really want to emphasize there would be those circumstances where you may have a Passamaquoddy, you know, a, a child who's, who's uh, registered with the Passamaquoddy or a citizen of the Passamaquoddy tribe but living on Penobscot Nation land. And so they wanted that flexibility in recognizing and giving the tribes, um, you know, that autonomy to collaborate with each other in those circumstances where, you know, it may not be just clear cut that, you know, this is the one child's tribe. And, you know, so all the placement preferences have to be with that tribe specifically or, you know, those circumstances. And so, uh, so I think that's, um, that's really recognized as well, that there's this intention of, 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 you know, ultimately the tribes are the experts on their children and their cultures. And, you know, if there's collaborations between tribes or however that works, you know, it's not necessarily the court's place to jump in and make those determinations if it can be helped. And and uh, just to expound on that a little bit, she, we were looking at um, when we think about you know, well, I'll just bring it down to where I work. When we think about the Mi'kmaq Nation and we think about ICWA, um, we automatically think, well, we're going to put that uh, child within the Mi'kmaq Nation, which is a preference. However, we we don't stop to realize that many Mi'kmaq people have traveled all kinds of places in this world and in the United States. So they may not even be in the state of Maine, um, but that particular um, Office of Children and Family Services has a responsibility to notify us, and then we we look at um, working along with them, co-case managing, like Esther said, in terms of what is in the best interest of those children, and looking at those active efforts to reunify them with the um, their parents, if possible. So, and it, it it sounds, and I like that there's a lot of uh, give and take in terms of how we interpret, um, you know, that continuity of those children within the community. So, um, for example, we had one family that was local in Holton. Um, the mom the, and the grandmother were Mi'kmaq. And so the, the children were then also Mi'kmaq as well. And then uh, the other grandmother was not Mi'kmaq. And there were four, four children involved. And the grandparents decided, the family team meeting, that I'll take responsibility of these two children. And the other one said, I'll take responsibility of these two children because that's what me and my husband can do at this point in time. And we did a designated Indian custodianship with the um, Mi'kmaq grandmother and a delegation of parental rights with the non-native grandmother. 
So it can, it can even be as complicated as that. And then continuing to look at working on uh, services for the wellness journey for those um, parents. So I just wanted to bring that up. And there are times when um, we look at permanency guardianship with our some of our um, children, that there's a permanency guardianship um, that we look at, um, you know, that extended to possibly um, a non-Mi'kmaq family because the parents are slow on their healing journey. And sometimes that takes a long time. Um, we all know that people fall back and forth off of, um, you know, their um, the concerns that they have in terms of substance use. And so that may take a while, but with the permanency guardianship, that parents, when they do finally do well on their healing journey, they can petition the court to consider, you know, all of those um, facts um, that, you know, they're doing well and, and possibly um, retain that custody, the children back in their own custody. And we have had that happen in our Mi'kmaq families. Um, but in the meantime, if, if the best interest of that child is with a non-Mi'kmaq family member, because we want to look at the least restriction and that which is causing the least trauma for the child or children. And we, we really focus on, um, in that coordination with our cultural department, like John Dennis, and uh, Maynard, the older gentleman, I'm sorry, I can't think of his last name right off. Hopefully I'll get it before this is done, but we, we coordinate with the information that's available to give those um, extended family members or resource homes um, uh, age appropriate information to share with those children. And we don't take that lightly. And this works wonderful because we're modern Indians and we can Google everything on the internet. And for the Mi'kmaqs, there's a plethora of information online regarding, um, you know, their history and their heritage. <laughs> I, this is Esther. I love um, the, the fact that when we're thinking about best interests of the children and ICWA takes into consideration the tribe, because it's not just about immediate safety, it, you know, part of safety is belonging. Um, and knowing where you come from and knowing and keeping those connections. Um, I just wanted to say you're listening to Dawnland Signals on WERU-FM. I am co-host Esther Ann, along with Maria Gerard. Dawnland Signals is a monthly talk show where we hold space for critical conversations of truth, healing, and change. Today, in our final episode, we are with members of the Tribal State Equal Work Group uh, and talking about this important legislation um, called the Indian Child Welfare Act, which was passed in 1978. Um, <clears throat> there's so much there. I have like, I had like three or four different things I wanted to follow up with, but it looks like Maria's got a question. Yes, I just wanted to touch back on what she mentioned very briefly about um, the Burkine case and wondered if you wanted to give a little bit of background about how that got started. I think it began in 20, uh, 2018, perhaps, with Texas and Louisiana and Indiana. Um, 
bringing suit. So I just wanted to open that up for some more conversation for the listeners to understand. Thanks, Maria. Um, yeah, so the Brackeen case um, started um, I, quite a few years ago at this point, as these types of litigation go, um, tend to go. And, and it really, um, it, it kind of, yeah, started um, down in the fifth federal district, really down in Texas in that area. Um, uh, and it was really uh, about, you know, the, you, you know, you, you, you tend to have a lot of, you know, special interest groups who may have, um, you know, certain motives or, or certain philosophies. And it, it came down to, you know, there are parts of ICWA that, you know, were challenged on constitutional grounds as, you know, favoring Indians based on race was the allegation, right, or something along those lines. And it was, you know, the the, the identified people sometimes were uh, foster parents who were disadvantaged because they didn't fall under the ICWA classifications, right? And, and so it went through, um, so this was filed in federal court and it went through kind of multiple layers. It was, uh, there was a district court ruling and then there was a, fed, um, a fifth circuit appellate ruling. And then there was an, another fifth circuit appellate en banc ruling. And, and those decisions were, you know, several hundred pages long, uh, very convoluted. There were certain, certain portions where, you know, I can't remember the exact number of Fifth Circuit appellate judges, but I think there were 20 plus weighing in on the case. And there were some that were tied like 11 to 11 or something like that on some provisions. And then other provisions are split like, you know, 9 to 12. Or, you know, I can't remember the exact numbers off the top of my head. So it was it was a very convoluted case. And ultimately, um, it was argued in the Supreme Court in November. Um, we expect, you know, probably a likely ruling in June. I think um, most people are expecting a ruling from the Supreme Court. And, and it's being challenged on several grounds. You know, there's the race classification challenge um, is the short version. There's also, you know, federalism issues in terms of commandeering states and whether or not that's appropriate. And um, kind of like the Indian Commerce Clause and, and just general federal powers in terms of how the bill was enacted. Um, so, so it's 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 very. Um, there are a lot of kind of different constitutional issues, and there are some more specific provisions of ICWA that are, you know, some provisions are more contentious than others, depending on how they're worded and how um, how they're implemented. Um, one, you know, the race-based one was um, uh, around a very specific provision. The third foster care placement preference is just Indian families. And I think the uh, the argument for the for the uh, people bringing the case was that you know this was a racial classification, whereas a lot of the case law stated that you know membership citizenship in an Indian tribe is a uh, political classification based on the unique relationship and history of the United States with kind of these sovereign entities, these tribes. Um, so there's a special trust relationship and a, and a special kind of relationship between the federal government and the tribes. And, and so that's um, that's kind of just a taste of some of the legal issues at play. And um, there's a lot of uncertainty. Right now, the, you know, there's an order in the Fifth Circuit, you know, which encompasses, I believe, Texas, Louisiana, a few of those states. I don't have the exact map in my mind. But so right now, you know, ICWA is partially impacted. But in the rest of the United States, ICWA is the federal um, ICWA statute remains good law. The regulations remain in full force and effect. 
um, until and unless the Supreme Court, you know, makes some some sort of ruling against that. So that's that's the short version, but uh, yeah. So as I understand, um, since ICL was passed, this is after passed in 1978, it has um, come under attack. It's been the um, challenged by many uh, cases, and there are a couple institutes. One is the Goldwater Institute and the American Enterprise Institute, which are heavily funded. Um, well-staffed uh, institutes or think tanks, I think they're called, um, that kind of scour the, the country looking for uh, an opportunity to represent usually non-Native foster parents who have Native children. And um, this, is, this is what happened in this case here with Breck Keene. And uh, across the country, there are several states that have um, taken it upon themselves to in an effort to protect ICWA, uh, passed their own state legislative law um, around the Indian Child Welfare Act. And that definitely would um, take away this anti-commandeering um, argument, right? She, because they're saying that the federal ICWA commands states to do something. And so if states are taking this on themselves, is that right? Yeah, Esther. I mean, that's that that's part of um, that's part of the um, argument that's being made in Supreme Court that you know the um, the federal government is improperly commandeering you know state governments, and it's important to recognize that you know child welfare has historically been you know a state kind of police power um, that states have really exercised. So even though you know the federal government does have a lot of impact on child welfare through like the Social Securities Act. And a lot of funding requirements and Title IV-E, you know, which is part of the Social Securities Act and things like that. Um, you know, the the thought was that ICWA might have been too direct, or at least that's the argument that was presented, right? Um, so when states kind of take that upon themselves, then that undercuts really the any commandeering kind of arguments. So that that's a that's a great point in favor of those state legislations. And maybe now is a appropriate time to talk about what Maine's doing. So I talked about how Maine has led the way in, in um, the tribal state ICWA work group, uh, that the training that um, Norma and she talked about that caseworkers get in 1999, when, before the ICWA work group started, they got a half hour. Now it's three and a half hours and working towards a day long training. Um, where caseworkers really learn a lot about the history and, and why ICWA is such a necessary law and why it has, um, why it's a gold standard. And um, we can talk a little bit later about some of the, why it was the gold standard and, and how um, the way ICWA is uh, implemented has improved practice for all children in, in the child welfare system. Um, <clears throat> but recently, uh, in the state of Maine, Senator Donna Bailey has um, is submitting legislation for a Maine Indian Child Welfare Act, and I know um, she is pretty has you know is pretty uh, knowledgeable about that. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that process. For sure, Esther. Um, and, and so you know, it's important to note that you know this is still you know everything's still kind of being worked as we speak, but the the goal is you know because 
because of, you know, this, and Esther referenced this, that, you know, ICWA, the federal ICWA statute and legislation has been attacked on several points um, throughout the decades. But this is probably the most um, comprehensive case that's come before the Supreme Court for ICWA in terms of the sheer volume and extent of the challenge. And so, I you know, I, I doubt that Maine is alone in thinking this, but that, you know, there are several um, states who are concerned that, you know, whether, um, if not fully, but, you know, if there are parts of ICWA that the um, Supreme Court may be, um, may find to be unconstitutional or, you know, maybe, or, you know, whatever may come, there is, there's a deal of uncertainty about, you know, what we can expect. So because of that, you know, I think Maine is looking at, um, and the Attorney General's office is taking a lead in drafting um, kind of a state ICWA legislation that would, um, that would essentially preserve a, a lot of the same aims and substantive rights uh, for tribes, parents, and children under um, that have been in place ever since uh, ICWA was enacted. Oh boy, it was 45 years ago, right? So these are these are rights that um, that have been in place for 45 years that we really want to um, protect and make sure that they continue to exist. And that, you know, we, um, I, I think the evidence has borne out that, you know, it's been important for children and the tribes um, to, to have all of these rights. So that's ultimately, you know, without getting into too many specifics, because, you know, there are, you know, it is still being worked. But that is ultimately what uh, I think the intent of this pending legislation will be, is to really protect those rights that we have all come to kind of expect and rely on. Thank you. So she will that. Oh, sorry. So she will that um, um, submission of that legislation um, happen so that Maine has that enacted before there's a decision from the federal government. I mean the um, Supreme Court, or or is the timing really not? Does it really not matter um, regarding um, you know the findings from the Supreme Court? So it's hard to say because there's no, I don't think there's any guarantees on timelines on either side of that equation, Norma. But I think that's definitely um, part of the analysis because we don't, we, you know, I think a gap would not be good. You know, if there was, a, you know, a gap would, you know, it, you know, these, these rights and have been substantively in effect for 45 years, right? So we don't want there to be, um, kind of legal confusion or, you know, a sudden change between one and the other. So I think that was part of the reason that, you know, we, um, that this is moving forward now is because, you know, there is a lot of uncertainty and we would prefer that, you know, that, you know, we ha we've had 45 years of this and, you know, we really want that continuity. So I think that's the goal is there not to be a gap. It, awesome. and, but again, you know, we don't know what's necessarily going to come from the Supreme Court, right? Awesome. I think that I think that's uh, we're very proactive, and I and I you know kudos to everybody that's working on that legislation. Um, you know those of us that are in the front lines of the field. Um, you know, really excited that you know this is moving forward exactly for what you said to you, so that we don't have a gap within um, you know that that representation. Um, you know, because I, I can see like, do we continue to co-case manage? Do we, you know, that we have a number of ongoing cases and assessments and um, certainly we'd like to um, see that, you know, that continues without, um, 
any any break in in what we're doing. And the, um, one of the things I wanted to you know really let our listeners know is that um, you know in I have been in the field for a number of years, um, and I've really seen that the ICWA, you know, that legislation has made a huge difference. And we we touched on it a little bit. It's made a huge difference on you know that gold standard being global to all families, which is really important. In other words, that we really strive here in the state of Maine to have those active efforts towards reunification, not only for you know those families in which ICWA um, applies, but with all the other families. And you know we bring um, uh, up the Family First um, Preservation Initiative and those kinds of things that the state of Maine is doing to really support you know, the prevention of um, uh, children being out of the home and working on those things, you know, um, before it gets to a place where custody has to be considered. And I think that makes for, I can see that that makes a huge difference, um, you know, for those families in the state of Maine. Yeah, um, this is after I, I can't help you. You talked a little bit, Norma, about uh, permanency guardianship and, Things like permanency guardianship and kinship care really are things that are in mainstream child protection system that came from Native practices. And I don't know if you want to talk about that a little bit more. Yeah, um, well, that <laughs> it's something that we do on a regular basis and that we really want to continue to keep, um, you know, those the children to have that access, you know, where they feel comfortable, where they they can continue to be with their friends and and receive those services within the community and those cultural activities. And so we look at um, permanency guardianship. Matter of fact, the probate call, court called me this morning um, regarding, um, you know, uh, inquiring about the membership of a child where the the permanency guardianship is going through and when yes indeed they are mem a member and and um the um extended family member is now at the point of looking at permanency guardianship and what the the main thing is that that doesn't preclude you know, there's not a termination of parental rights so that at at, at some point if that if that parent or parents you know, are really effective in their healing journey, there can be a, a change over in that. And we've seen that happen. You know, we've seen that happen um, with the cases that I've worked on. It's awesome. But when there's a permanency guardianship and here, um, those that we're working with in the county, um, they continue to work together with the parents. You know, they have visits and they're, they're always looking at what is the um, the best way of doing that for the child's safety and for their continued bonding and growth. And so that it, it just seems to be a weaving of, um, you know, those services and those interactions. And that really promotes the parents to do well. And then at some point, custody can be returned to them, which is awesome. And that's always a ray of hope for people that have made some bad choices about their behaviors, but that want to now look at making some good choices and moving forward. Yeah, I know that um, there was a time when children in, in um, child protective custody 
never got placed with family because the thought was the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Why would you let grandma have these kids if she raised this this kind of a parent and this um, value of kin and placing children with family has really um, permeated. It's, it's more mainstream now um, for, for child welfare to do that. And that came from tribal practices as well as permanency guardianship. Awesome. Exactly. <laughs> so did I, did I miss it before? Is there um, a legislative document number yet assigned to this? No? Okay. No, not yet. Okay. <laughs> it's forthcoming. I guess it's not unusual um, for placeholder bills because it was put in uh, the end of December, which is called cloture, which is a, I've said, I keep saying that word because I just learned it. <laughs> cloture is the end of December when legislators can put in placeholder bills and then the content is um, submitted later. An LD number is assigned, it goes to the revisor's office and then, um, then hearings and all of that. So um, it's forthcoming. I think it'll be, it'll be rather soon. So um, when there is when there is a docket number, can our families and and friends and those people that are committed to the, our children and families can what can they do to help support that? Is there um, can they write some of their representatives? Can they call? Is there a way we can get that out once there's a docket number? Yeah, all of the above. Um, so Wabanaki Reach is going to be this this radio show here is part of our effort to educate people about ICWA in general, the history, why it's the gold standard and to inform people about this legislation. We're partnering with the Maine Children's Alliance um, who will uh, can give more information to people about how to interact with the legislative process and how to best support it. Um, so we're real excited about that. Awesome. So I just wanted to say that you are listening to Dawnland Signals on WERU-FM. I am co-host Esther Ann, along with Maria Gerard. Dawnland Signals is a monthly talk show where we hold space for critical conversations of truth, healing, and change. And today we're with members of the Tribal State ICWA Workgroup talking about ICWA, the Indian Child Welfare Act. We have Shi uh, Chen and Norma Salas with us today. I just wanted to say, you know, just listening to you all recount your your stories and sort of the the long journey that's been taken with with the Indian Child Welfare Act here in in the state and nationally. I just want to say thank you so much for your your dedication to protecting the children in that way. And you know, I I keep hearing uh, words like working together and collaboration and co management, and I keep thinking like. Gee, you know, so many other um, so many other departments could learn <laughs> could learn a lot from the from the uh, social workers of the the ICWA work group uh, when it comes to co management and working together on things. And you know, just that I I really appreciate that so much. And um, also because I'm not you know an expert in the field I know just enough to be dangerous probably but um you know I, I hear like some key words that you're talking about and I get curious about like when you say active efforts I've heard active efforts several times um 
Can somebody give like an example? Like, what do you mean by active efforts? I'll be glad to help you on that one, Maria. So when we look at active efforts, okay, so we have a parent that have made some choices about their behaviors that, um, and I constantly, and everybody that knows me, I call it, they've gotten themselves into a kerfuffle. So when they get <laughs> into a kerfuffle, they need to change some of those behaviors. And how do we do that? Well, you know, when, when you're at that place, you, ha you have no idea what kind of services are available. So active efforts, really the caseworkers look at what do we need? Sometimes there's an assessment. So we may look at a substance abuse assessment. Was that really um, a huge concern or was it a one-offy that was kind of dangerous that got you in a serious place? Um, is there mental health um, concerns there? So we look at those referrals for those services that can do an assessment and then um, look at continuing on with those services to help out. Active efforts can mean, okay, so we're going to have visitation. This is a visitation schedule. They could be at a um, uh, non-family home, for example, up in the county. AMHC often has them at their facility. Um, and then there's transportation that's set up to go there. So you can't just say, well, we want you to visit your child uh, two or three times a week for an hour or two, and they need snacks and toys and so on, and then just leave them to do that. The active effort would be in making those arrangements in terms of where the visits are going. Are they supervised, unsupervised? Who's going to transport them there and back? Um, you know, that those are you're actively helping them move on their healing journey, move towards, you know, meeting some of those goals that are in the family plan. So um, that's what we call active efforts. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, um, there's a standard of reasonable efforts that caseworkers follow for, for, like Norma said, setting up the appointment. An active effort would be getting them to that appointment yes, <laughs> exactly. really, it, it's it's a little it's more work in the beginning but the rewards are greater it ends up being less work in the end um being that helpful to parents um and i don't know if we have time to complicate things but one part of ICWA is uh requires an ICWA qualified expert witness and i don't know if she wanted to maybe talk a little bit about the legal um legalities of that and what that really means? Sure. So a qualified expert witness is just um, essentially what it's meant to be is someone who is an expert, a legal, well, I shouldn't use that phrase, is just an expert uh, in um, kind of child rearing practices and the customs of the tribe. And so their role is really if there's a hearing in the district court or just a proceeding uh, involving an Indian child, their role is really there to inform the court uh, and the decision maker about child rearing practices and how you know there's allegations of abuse or neglect, you know that's why people are in court in the first place, and how those child rearing practices um, would impact, you know how how those child rearing practices kind of help you interpret those allegations of abuse and neglect. And the classic example I think of that comes to mind is you know you may have. Um, in an Indian culture, 
like a, a, a sibling of a certain age, maybe 10 years old, watching a younger child. And maybe, you know, for um, for a judge who's, you know, got this, you know, kind of idea, it's like, well, isn't that neglect, right? Isn't that automatically neglect under certain cultural expectations? And, you know, if, if the um, tribal culture or the Indian culture of rearing children, you know, permits that and has expectations and a history of that, then that really changes the equation for in terms of how that abuse or neglect is classified. So that's just one example, but I think it's a really good example of how, um, you know, a QEW is really there to help fill in the gaps of that cultural expertise that maybe no one else in that courtroom has. Um, and that's ultimately what they're there for, um, is, uh, is to fill in that gap. And it's important to know that um, the, the QEW is so crucial because these high rates of removal of Native children that uh, precipitated the ICWA law, you know, children were being removed according to white middle-class standards and not in, according to tribal parenting and cultural standards. So the QEW is, is a very important role. Yeah. And Esther, I should do a plug that, you know, we're always seeking to recruit uh, QEWs as well <laughs> um, in terms of, um, you know, providing some of that legal background and training on, you know, how to testify and prepare your reports and things like that. If you're interested in, you know, developing that as a professional avenue in providing that expertise in these very difficult, um, you know, uh, cases involving children. So, so it's a great resource that we're trying to develop. Thank you for that. And I just wanted to offer space for Norma. We're getting um, ready to wind up the show sh shortly. And I just wanted to give you the floor and see if there's any uh, last comments that you would like to make or anything more that you would like to share that we haven't asked you about. Yeah, I really appreciate you um, having me on. Um, this is the first time I've recorded a radio show. It's awesome. And um, I, I did want to thank um, Shi Chin to talk about the uh, qualified expert witnesses because if they do make a huge difference. I know that in um, some tribes, um, the child welfare uh, team, you know, also acts as a qualified expert witness. But I like having, you know, um, another opinion, more heads at the table. Yes, I'm a mom and a grandmother, and I know, you know, our child rearing practices. But it's nice for the judge in the family court to have another opinion specifically regarding, um, you know, the tribal's culture and customs. That's awesome. And um, I've really enjoyed the um, uh, ICWA work group. And it was really so helpful in terms of, um, you know, getting all the information we that we need. And um, I, I like the idea that the ICWA directors can get together and talk about some of the um, uh, programs and cases and so on that we have. It's, and I hope we continue that for another 45 years. <laughs> it's well needed. Wonderful, yes, great shout out to the April Work Group. So much, so much good work over so many years. So um, Esther, any, any? Yeah, I'm th thinking about the, you know, I've had the, privilege and the honor to be part of that work group since the beginning and you know when Maria talked about other departments in the state could learn a lesson I remember when the 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 
Truth and Reconciliation Commission was just getting underway and it was uh, Penobscot Chief Kirk Francis that said, you know, this process that they've gone through, this truth healing and change process that we created um, within uh, between tribal and state child welfare staff that was needed to create that uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission process. He said, if that could be replicated in other areas of tribal state relations, you know, we, we could probably see some movement. And, you know, I, I've always been proud of the fact that uh, the way the ICWA work group has come together for the children. And if we can do that for children, I think we can do it for land and water and all the other issues as well. So there's a lot to be proud of um, in Maine around ICWA. Absolutely. I couldn't think of any better words to uh, start to sign off on our final Dawnland Signals show. As Esther said in, in the beginning of the show, uh, Dawnland Signals began three years ago in April of 2020. Our purpose was to uphold um, not only the findings and recommendations of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, but to highlight the work of Wabanaki peoples who are doing what we call truth, healing, and change work. And so we've covered just so many topics and those shows will continue to be accessible on the WERU archives. Uh, three years was a, was a good run, many great conversations and connections and just a diversity of um, tribal voices. So with that, um, I thank you, the listeners for joining us on Dawnland Signals. Thank you to our volunteer technician, Jeffrey Hodgkiss. Um, thanks to all who contributed to a successful program. Um, Willy Wani, great thanks. Uh, we did this all together and we appreciate you. So our final goodbye, um, I'm sure we'll be seeing you down the road somewhere though. So Minach Kanamio. Up Thank you.